This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, we meet the McNabs, a farming family south of Pocatello, plus another ranching couple from the Lazy JM Ranch in Hauser. And we also check in with Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. Welcome. I hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Our news is just ahead. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4-H.org. How might agriculture be impacted if the nation's rail carriers and their employees go on strike next month? Rod Bain has this report. Concern grows about rail shipments and agriculture. After four of the nation's largest rail unions this week rejected a contract deal brokered by the White House. A potential strike by rail workers starting December 9th would, according to President Joe Biden via White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, be detrimental because of the harm it would inflict on jobs, families, farms, businesses, and communities across the country. Tom Haig of the National Corn Growers Association says a rail strike would exasperate current transportation challenges, such as low water water levels on the lower Mississippi River. That would happen to shut down. Then all of a sudden we have our truckers available. Well, how many trucks is it going to take if we have issues on the river, plus the train, to try to get this product moved? And plus we also got high diesel prices. If talks do not resume on a new contract for rail workers, there is a possibility of congressional intervention. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Cold, dry weather continues to hamper U.S. winter wheat crop condition, yet might there be some weather signals that could benefit the crop in some areas? Rod Bain has the answer in this report with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. There's really not much way to put a favorable spin on the early months of this crop's development. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey referring to the nation's winter wheat crop. You've seen a combination of factors, including drought and periods of very cold weather, limiting the establishment of this crop that's been planted over the last several weeks. And as the crop is either now dormant or entering dormancy, Rippey says an eye will be kept on size to help improve crop condition. For instance, this upcoming storm starting Thanksgiving Day, it could produce some much-needed moisture for the winter wheat crop across Oklahoma and Texas. Another storm system that is expected to miss the Central Plains, which is in dire need of moisture for its winter wheat crop. Other areas of the country, including the Northern Plains and the Midwest and even the Northwest, moisture has been okay in some areas, but at the same time, some of these episodes of cold weather have also limited the development and establishment of the crop. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, there are a few changes to USDA's latest food price forecast. Gary Crawford visits with USDA economist Matt McLaughlin in this report. With less than two months left in this year, no big changes to report in the Ag Department's latest 2022 forecast for grocery store food price inflation. We are forecasting a between 11 and 12% increase. And USDA economist Matt McLaughlin says those prices have already increased this year by over 9%, so 11 or 12% total 2022 average food price increase seems to be a pretty good bet. But actually, we lied earlier. Matt says they did make a pretty big adjustment upward in the forecast for egg prices. You may have heard about millions of egg-laying hens dying or having to be destroyed to reduce the spread of avian influenza. This outbreak is unusual because in bird flu outbreaks in the past, the hot weather stopped the virus and the infections. However, this time around, we had an uptick in infections and particularly egg-laying hens. 
So we have corresponding price increases. Matt says when all is said and done for the year, consumers probably will have paid over 30% more for eggs compared to last year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The American Farm Bureau Federation announced a keynote speaker for its 2023 annual convention. Michael Clements tells us the speaker has a positive message to share with attendees. Farm Bureau just announced the keynote speaker for its 2023 convention in Puerto Rico, January 6th through 11th, 2023. Nikki Jones, Director of Events Marketing with Idea Ag, says Burt Jacobs will deliver the keynote address. The keynote speaker for the closing general session at the convention this year is Burt Jacobs, co-founder and chief executive optimist of his company called Life is Good. Bert and his brother John launched their business with $78 in their pockets, selling t-shirts in the streets of Boston. Today, Life is Good is a $150 million brand, and they are a positive lifestyle brand that impacts over a million kids a year. Jones says Jacobs is a good fit for the agricultural audience. Bert will tell us the story of how his brand came to be, all the mistakes, the missteps, and all of it. His story will leave farmers and ranchers with the tools needed to develop an optimistic mindset that eventually leads to success. He'll help farmers uncover kind of a deeper purpose in both business and life on the farm. It'll be truly, I think, an inspiring speech for them to hear. You can register to attend the convention in person or virtually. Obviously, you can be there with us in person in sunny Puerto Rico. We'd love to see everyone there. In addition to our keynote address, we'll have an incredible lineup of educational workshops, general session events, and of course, island exploration opportunities. You can also opt to join the action virtually. Just select virtual only registration. Go to annualconvention.fb.org to register. Again, register online at annualconvention.fb.org. Michael Clements, Washington. Well, John and Karen McNabb were recently awarded Bannock County's Farm Family of the Year. The Idaho Farm Bureau has this report. Well, I'm John McNabb, and this is my wife, Karen. And uh, we, I was born and raised here close by, and just ra- I was raised just down the road here where my parents lived growing up. My wife is from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. and we, we met at BYU when we were both going to school, and uh, that was a great experience. I had been, I had just returned home from serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and was home just a few days and went down to BYU and and met my sweetheart uh, just a, a few days later. And of course, t- over a period of time, we got to know each other and eventually we were, we were married. That was in um, September and then on we were married the next uh, 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 summer. So. In 1979. In 1979. Uh-huh. I knew that he was a farm boy. And she got right a hold of the farm life and has loved it ever since. We've, we've uh, raised our children on the farm. and We have 10 children. Out of the 10, we have seven uh, boys and three girls. And uh, they have all grown up on the farm and all participated with um, uh, uh, running machinery, in the, in the, particularly in the hay field. Uh, they've, we've had animals. Uh, they've all participated in raising animals. And it's just been a great experience. We also do most of our own mechanic work, and so uh, uh, we have uh, some sons that work with us full time, and, and we do a lot of our own mechanic after work. They've gotten and, their education, and they've come back, and it's been great. Well, we, they learn responsibility, and uh, when a job needs to be done, it needs to be done, and it needs to be done timely. 
And uh, also I think that we learn there is no free lunch in life. Uh, sometimes in life we hear a lot about free this and free that, but there's, no, there's nothing free, it costs. And uh, I think of the law of the harvest, we, um, uh, we reap what we sow or what we plant. And you learn that definitely on the farm, and, and, uh, but it applies in about every aspect of life. Oh, it does, and you know, we've, we've always thought, we've had pigs through the years, the kids have had pig projects and other things that didn't have anything to do with FFA or 4-H, just to raise some money. And, um, but we think about our, 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 our livelihood here, and you know, we might think we raise crops, we raise pigs, no, we're raising children. And I think that that has been the biggest benefit, is to have these projects and this lifestyle for them to be able to look back on and, and think of the values that are in the land and are um, in our hearts and I, it's it's been important. I'll borrow a thought from my, from my dad from years ago but we can talk about farming and the crops that we have but the best crop that we've uh, ever raised are our children <laughs> and, and grandchildren. And it's not and it's not easy just like farming Raising children isn't easy either. You have your ups and your downs and yeah. your droughts and your, your plenty times. And, you know, it's just, that's, that's how it goes. Where John grew up here and his father and his grandfather, it has a lot of meaning to us. Great-grandfather, yes, he came and, and homesteaded here. My great-grandfather came in 1910, 1910. and homesteaded here. And, and then... Uh, <clears throat> My grandfather, of course, in the early days, they farmed with horses and then machinery came around. And then my father, uh, who I, uh, my father passed away earlier this year and uh, we miss him all summer long. I go around and doing the work and looking at the fields and, and I think of him and uh, oftentimes I'm thinking, boy, I wish I could ask him this question or that question. And so we've missed him a lot, but uh, he had a great life and, and uh, left a great, uh, legacy behind in, in our family and, and in the farm and other things that we do. And this is part of the old homestead, the, the land back here. And there used to be an old wooden house right over there. And then in 1914 is when they built the barn. And it's built on uh, just wood timbers around the bottom. They're uh, placed on rock uh, for a foundation, just uh, individual rock. And so the, the barn served as uh, hay storage for the workhorses. This is where they were fed and housed and then uh, they, he had, uh, they had several milk cows that they milked here in the barn and, and other animals have, have been kept here as well, cows and sheep and pigs and over the years. In uh, 2014, why it was the 100 year anniversary for the barn and it was looking pretty rough, pretty rough and it came a time where we either need to restore it and get something going or it was going to uh, eventually uh, it would be in ruin and fall and you know eventually it would fall down so we took quite a bit of time and effort to restore the barn in 2014 on its 100 year anniversary and we, we painted it it's about doing another paint job now but uh, uh, the granddaughters of my dad and mom had the opportunity to climb up and repaint the WH on yes, the barn. Yes, he got a Tell them what the WH stands for. The WH stands for William Harrison, McNabb. William Harrison McNabb and that was his brand when um, he homesteaded here and had some cows and so that's what we 
what that is, but we had a, what did you, yeah, we had a lift and some of the granddaughters and I got to go up there too. We went up there and repainted, repainted the WH. WDH, yeah, that was good. Now it's become more of a, you know, we fixed it up and cleaned it up and, and we do little events and things here, so. So several years ago, we were up here farming in we were up here farming in the field that was part of the old homestead, and one of the workers found this horseshoe out in the field, just laying in the in the soil. And uh, my uh, one uh, relative that was working there, we looked at that and said, uh, one of us said, my grandpa, we took that, we could take that to my grandpa, and he'd probably say, what horse that? He would know what horse that came from. And so. Sure enough, I took it to my grandpa, the old dirty horseshoe at the time, and and he said, "Well, that's off old Chub." And I said, "Well, now, Grandpa." Right away, he knew. What, and I says, "How do you know that?" And he he explained the way the horseshoe was worn, that it was off old Chub. And so, um, this is just kind of an old family memory that we have, and and it used to be down at my house, but I brought it up to the barn and and hung it here for a while. So, it was. An experience to talk to my grandpa about the old horses, and uh, each time he would get choked when he would talk about his old horses, he would he would get a little choked up. And uh, he had Days and Doll were a team. Chubb worked by himself, but Days and Doll were a team, and Big Dan and Little Ann were a team. And old uh, Ford pickup that my dad located uh, years ago, probably in the whole late '60s. It was in Pocatello, and it was in really rough shape at the time. And then. Uh, we fixed it up at that time, and it's, it's uh, just been kind of in the family since then. And when I was in high school, yeah, it's been in. So that was in the 70s, and we've driven and, it in the parade. We've down dri driven it in parades and years. just have a good time with the family with it. You know, if it's hard to get going as a young person in farming because of the cost, but it's possible. It's like so many other ways of life. You start out from the bottom. You you be willing to to do whatever it is to uh, do the cleanup work, do the the chores. You start out with um, a little bit of equipment operation and learn how to repair it, and you just you stick with it. And eventually, opportunities can can come, but it requires a lot of commitment and desire to desire to be there. I there are definitely things in life that um, uh, financially are probably more appealing to people, but the way of life on a farm and the opportunity to uh, work together and, and uh, suffer the, the hard times and enjoy the good times together, there, there are great experiences and a great place to raise a family. You know, I, I hope that our future generations will feel a responsibility to preserve our, the way of life. And we need to, to, to save and preserve our farmlands in this country. And it's a big concern of losing uh, good uh, farm ground, farm ground that, especially that with irrigation. And we need to be uh, proactive about, about taking care of, of farming in the future. By the way, you can see this video report online at IdahoFB.org. When we return, the USDA and its role in developing urban agriculture. And we'll meet the mobs, a couple operating a grass-fed cattle operation in Hauser, Idaho. Looking for ways to serve but don't know where to begin? Go to JustServe.org, a free site to help those who want to serve find opportunities nearby. JustServe has teamed up with organizations nationwide. Go to JustServe.org and type in your city, 
and you'll see a list of service opportunities. Sign up on JustServe to receive emails letting you know about new projects. JustServe is fast, free, and easy. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. The Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production was developed as part of the 2018 Farm Bill, designed to promote food production in urban areas through various innovations and support mechanisms. Rod Bain looks at the efforts made by the Agriculture Department to build up urban agriculture in this edition of Agriculture USA. Urban Agriculture. It's a term that might seem fairly new to some, but as Leslie Glover of the Agriculture Department's Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production points out, People have been growing food close to where they live ever since people have decided to settle down and live in one location. Including cities, especially in times of crisis. Yet with more urban producers growing a greater variety of crops for an expanding list of markets, the 2018 Farm Bill further established USDA's role in advancing urban agriculture, innovative production, and economic opportunity. The Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production, our mission is to encourage and promote urban, indoor, and other emerging agricultural practices, including community composting and food waste reduction. I'm Rod Bain. Brian Gussie of the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production is among those joining us to discuss USDA's role in promoting urban agriculture. In this edition, of Agriculture USA. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. Urban agriculture, while to some may be a relatively new happening, has actually been around for several decades. Take, for instance, in the mid-1890s. The Pingree Potato Patches. Named after the mayor of Detroit, who developed potato patches during an economic crisis, meant to feed unemployed citizens who tended to these sustenance gardens. Leslie Glover says USDA has been involved in efforts going back to the war gardens of World War I and victory gardens of the Second World War. All throughout the history of the U.S., there's been ups and downs with urban agriculture, and it's usually associated with hard times, and people recognize that there may be a need to go back and grow more food right where they live. Glover is with USDA's Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production. Over the past two decades, the recognition of urban agriculture and various advances such as hoop houses has led to not just sustenance growing, but economic opportunity for farmers and cities. That led to the development of the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production through the 2018 Farm Bill. Oversight for the office is provided by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Brian Gussie of the office notes some of the tasks given to the agency as spelled out in the Farm Bill. One was to create the Federal Advisory Committee for Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production to develop and administer and provide oversight to a number of competitive grant and cooperative agreement programs. The Federal Advisory Committee began meetings this year. The committee is 
by design supposed to advise the Secretary of Agriculture on the development of policies and outreach relating to urban, indoor, and other emerging agricultural production practices, as well as to identify any barriers to urban agriculture. USDA Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production Grant Awards are provided in two project categories. Leslie Glover explains planning projects. Really help to initiate or expand efforts where urban and suburban farmers or gardeners, regular citizens are really looking to target those food access issues to try to educate a new generation and connect them with agriculture, to help businesses that need some startup costs for new farming and for urban agroforestry in these areas, and then to help with zoning policies. We're trying to really help these different producers to navigate some of these policies. While with the implementation project grants. This is usually when work has already started and we're really trying to help accelerate the work that the communities and organizations are already doing in some of these same areas. Brian Gussie says also available as support from USDA, compost, and food waste reduction cooperative agreements. That is primarily designed to provide support to municipal and local governments who are interested in developing either pilot programs or ongoing programs related to efforts to increase production of compost that would be then used to support urban agriculture and then also at the same time reducing food waste and loss. In addition, there is the relaunch of USDA's People's Garden Initiative. We're working very closely with a number of our state NRCS offices to establish People's Gardens in a select number of cities. Several of these cities are among the locations of USDA Farm Service Agency Urban County Committee pilots, bringing producer input, representation, and management of policies on the ground level. To learn more about USDA urban agriculture and innovative production efforts, information is available online, both at www.usda.gov urban and farmers.gov urban. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We now go to Hauser, Idaho, where the Idaho Farm Bureau had a chance to sit down with John and Betty Mobs from the Lazy JM Ranch, a grass-fed cow-calf operation. So, hi, my name is John Mobs. This is my wife, Betty. We own and operate the uh, Lazy JM Ranch at the north end of Hauser Lake, Idaho. Um, We've just celebrated our 50-year anniversary here. We raise grass-fed and grass-finished beef, and we try and pasture as much as we can. And we raise our our calves here. It's a cow-calf to finish operation. And we've been doing it for how many years now? We started uh, the movement toward regenerative ranching in 2000. 13 with baby steps, um, with each year um, getting closer and closer to all the attributes of regenerate egg. My great grandfather had a dairy, and when I was born, we lived on that dairy ground next to my grandfather. Um, and then we moved here in 72, and we just picked it up from there. So we've had cattle and we've done haying uh, ever since 19, well before 1972 obviously. So was there any dairying that was done here on this? No, there was no dairying. There was a dairy at one time here, 
all of the facility was here, but we never went down that pathway. So, um, my wife retired, Betty retired, and, uh, and we started the grass-fed, grass-finished beef program here. Um, we took a few classes and, and we ended up starting to produce beef through Regenerative Ag. We really didn't know it was Regenerative Agriculture, but we actually just stumbled onto it. It's just based off our practices, meaning we don't use any pesticides, we don't use any fertilizers, and we rotate our animals through um, cells in our fields. Our fields. Changes-wise, we've done a lot of changes. Uh, we went from the fertilizer or the chemical aspect of farming and using a lot of uh, a lot of iron in the ground to we don't do any of that anymore and in fact if I thought back um, my grandfather taught me actually how to farm without using these uh, these props if you will and in in reality that's how we're farming today is like my somewhat like my grandfather used to do back in you know back in the 20s and 30s So those are some of the changes we've made. Uh, another another change we made is through genetics. Uh, we went from the Semitol uh, breed, um, Semitol Angus Cross, and now we've introduced a lower frame score, which more like the low line, if you will. Um, we have a cross between your typical Angus and, and low line. So we're looking at a frame score of about a four, which is not very tall, and that that change alone has really helped us, really helped us out a lot as far as our production. You know, you know, it just didn't, the numbers didn't pan out when I did the, uh, I'm gonna move over above. The numbers really didn't pan out very well when we, when we hauled them to the sale yard. And Betty uh, started direct marketing and that has been a huge part of our our success here is that direct marketing. Um, I took an animal down to Lewiston and when I came home I got the paycheck and, and it was just like it was crazy and then we when Betty we decided all animals at this point are direct marketed and we'll make another thousand fifteen hundred dollars an animal. So direct marketing is, is, a, is a huge tool for us and it's been very helpful, obviously. So how, do, how does direct marketing work for you? Well, that's Betty's end of the deal there. Betty, 2013, I retired and Monday morning I was- and you retired in, from? Uh, 34 years of teaching first graders. And Monday morning I was in business classes with the Small Business Development Center. I highly recommend that. Um, through those classes and many, many more classes through them, um, I developed a, a website. And then eventually um, in 2020, fast forward, um, we created, along with um, Emily Black and Lisa Pointer, we created the North Idaho um, Farm Stand, which is the Panhandle Farm Corridor. And we started out with nine farms in 2020 and now we're up to 24 farms. We um, joyfully and dutifully um, supply um, farm fresh, 
clean beef um, to over 60 families. Um, we have two mottos is every day is Earth Day at Lazy JM Ranch. And the other one is healthy soils, healthy um, animals, healthy pollinators, and a healthy planet. And that's our contribution, you know, in this chapter of our lives. By the way, to see the video of this report, just go to IdahoFB.org. In our next segment, the latest glance at rural America and those falling beef cattle numbers. When will it stop on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show? Looking for ways to serve but don't know where to begin? Go to JustServe.org, a free site to help those who want to serve find opportunities nearby. JustServe has teamed up with organizations nationwide Go to JustServe.org and type in your city, and you'll see a list of service opportunities. Sign up on JustServe to receive emails letting you know about new projects. JustServe is fast, free, and easy. We're back on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. What were the latest population and economic trends in rural America revealed in USDA's annual report studying our nation's rural areas? Here's Rod Bain with more. Gains in rural population over the last two years? We saw an increase in in-migration, which overcame and offset pandemic deaths and traditionally low fertility rates, such that we had a quarter percent point increase in population growth between the period 2020 and 2021. Jim Davis of the Economic Research Service with the finding from this year's edition of USDA's Rural America at a Glance report. The report is issued annually and it's generally an annual summary of demographic and economic trends and also includes some additional topics that highlight rural America opportunity and challenges that are happening at the time. And in this particular report in 2022, we cover population trends, industry structural changes, information about the rural labor force and its race and ethnicity characteristics. What makes the uptick in rural population noteworthy is that in the 10 years between the 2010 decennial census and the 2020 decennial census, annual population growth rates were either zero or slightly negative. So overall for that decade, we found a decrease about half a percent in population. Overall rural population as of July last year was at over 46 million people. Among the other notable findings from the 2022 edition of Rural America at a Glance. First, the rural population is aging and also that the working age population has declined over the last decade. The second main finding is that industry job reallocation has moved jobs out of traditional mainstay rural industries such as agriculture, manufacturing and retail. And with the job growth has occurred more in services industries such as healthcare, hospitality and services. And and then finally, the rural workforce has become more racially and ethnically diverse over the last few years. Davis notes the significance of the older rural population in the U.S. For the first time ever, the population 65 and older has reached one in five people in the rural economy. So in 2010, those 65 and older were 16% of the population. And now in 2021, they've grown to be 20% of the rural population. And while changes in categorical job growth in rural America have shifted, so have in some cases 
productivity. Davis says for the rural manufacturing sector, We saw from 2001 through 2019 that employment declined by 19% in manufacturing. Output actually in rural manufacturing, as measured by gross domestic product, increased by 24% over that same time period. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, new data shows beef cattle numbers are still falling. Is there a herd rebuild anywhere in sight? Here's Gary Crawford with the answer. If there has been any doubt about the nation's beef cattle herd continuing to shrink, the latest USDA report on cattle feedlot activity should erase that doubt, right? That's true. That's true. Agriculture Department Livestock Analyst Shale Shagham, the report puts placements of animals into feedlots during October at just over 2.1 million head. Lower than, than, than a number of analysts were expecting. 6% lower than October a year ago. And that placement number is actually the lowest uh, placement number for October since the series began in 1996. Which has left the inventory of animals in feedlots November 1st at 11.7 million head, 2% fewer than November of last year. As to how we got to this point, it's been the same old sad story all year. As the drought has affected large portions of the United States, producers were faced with poor forage conditions. They were faced with ideas of, of low availability of hay to probably overwinter some of these animals. And that was you know, reflected in the fact that we saw very high placements of animals earlier in the year. We've seen high levels of cow slaughter. And as the number of cattle outside feedlots diminished, placement numbers going forward have gotten smaller. Leading to the prospect of even smaller supplies of cattle and less beef production as we head into 2023. USDA's most recent projections put 2023 beef output expected down 7% from this year. Average steer prices up about the same percentage. So we are definitely on the downside of the cattle cycle. My question is, is how do we look at that for a continued decline longer run? Or are there signs of maybe a turnaround in the cycle? If so, when? USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer is certainly looking for any clues on that. He told us that right now... We continue to have poor forage conditions in the West, high feed costs. So I'm continuing to watch cow slaughter, continuing to even look at anecdotal price information for heifers. Just looking there to say, when are we, when are we going to maybe turn this and start to rebuild cattle herds. But right now, Shale Shagham says as far as incentive to rebuild? is going to depend on availability of forage. And right now we are continuing to see very large cow slaughter, well above year ago levels. So at the moment, it doesn't appear that there is incentive. He says even the prospect of higher cattle prices doesn't make up for lower forage supplies across the country. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In our final segment, navigating the farm loan application tool, and Paul Marchant checks in with Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Looking for ways to serve but don't know where to begin? Go to JustServe.org, a free site to help those who want to serve find opportunities nearby. JustServe has teamed up with organizations nationwide. Go to JustServe.org and type in your city, and you'll see a list of service opportunities. Sign up on JustServe to receive emails letting you know about new projects. JustServe is fast, free, and easy.
Welcome back to our final segment on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. A new USDA online farm loan application tool is available to help producers more easily understand and complete the application process. Rod Bain has this report. USDA farm loans provide one opportunity for producers to get the financing they need to start out on or expand their operation. I'm a big fan of our FSA loan programs and I don't think there's a better deal. Even with the full support given to such lenders, opportunities by Farm Service Agency Administrator Zach Ducheneau, he will also acknowledge. One of the challenges we have in those programs, though, is we have a fairly convoluted application process, and it's hard for producers to understand from the outset what the eligibility requirements are, what we might loan money for, and where they fit into the suite of services that we currently offer. With that in mind, a recent announcement regarding farm loads is what the administrator calls a first step in efforts to approve access to USDA programs and services while simplifying the loan application process. The loan assistance tool is really our effort to start reimagining how we're going to do farm loans into the future. The tool is designed to counter a high rate of incomplete or withdrawn loan applications, particularly within underserved populations due to the complex application process. And the farm loan team is already working to streamline our loan application to have it look a lot more like a financial document and a lot less like a packet of paper that has a bunch of legalese or jargon on it. The administrator says the need to streamline the loan application process is essential, especially for use of financing for potential purchases or investments that are time sensitive. The opportunities to get into agriculture are often very time limited. You may never get another opportunity to buy the chunk of land that adjoins you. And if the tool that you need is what the FSA has to offer and it takes us six months to get an application through the door, that just isn't acceptable. So we need to be able to move in a more timely manner so we can help producers take advantage of opportunity when it does present itself. The loan assistance tool is available online at farmers.gov slash farm dash loan dash assistance dash tool. And farmers.gov slash loans is the location to learn more about USDA Farm Service Agency loans and loan programs. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally today, Paul Marchant's Irons in the Fire. Happy fall, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. This is Paul Marchant coming at you from a cold, chilly, brisk basin east of Oakley, Idaho. It was an odd, if not downright goofy fall in south-central Idaho. Until winter hit the first week in November, we didn't truly realize that summer left. The farmers in our country have rarely been so cheerful and congenial at the end of harvest season, which arrived quite a bit earlier than normal this year. Mother Nature was incredibly cooperative. We had a few light rains, but the temperatures for the most part stayed in the high 60s to mid-70s, only dropping into the mid-40s at night. The potato and beet diggers never really stopped for a weather break, and even those with the most miserable jobs, like the clod pickers at the spud cellars, maintained unseasonably cheerful dispositions. For some of us cow folk, the balmy weather threw a few kinks into the normal routine as the cows were loathed to head down to the lower country as long as the snow and the colder temperatures stayed away. That being the case, a good share of their regularly scheduled activities had to be pushed back to later dates. 
At the Martin Outfit, most of the major projects, like weaning and preg checking, are dependent upon the availability of a cheap and a willing workforce. All three of my sons now live within a three-hour drive of the home place, so ideally I'd love to have all of them available to help when the big cowboy project shows up on the calendar, but honestly, I'm happy if I get 33%. This year, none of the family, including old Ma Nature, seemed to be able to cooperate with my preferred schedule. On the weekend, I'd planned to wean the lion's share of the calves, even though I still didn't have them all gathered out of the foothills. None of my boys were available to help that day. My youngest son, who hadn't had a day off from work in ages, was heading east with his schoolteacher wife for an end-of-the-semester weekend in Jackson Hole. Son number two was on weekend call with his paying job, and the oldest had planned to go south for a weekend birthday trip with his wife to Salt Lake to see what the city had to offer. He even stole my wife for a babysitter. She was happy to do some grandma duties, but that left just me to help myself, and I'm pretty mediocre help at best. On the night before my wife left, as I was lamenting my plight, it struck me that in our younger days we were never able to take a couple days off just to get away. At least we never did. We were always out on some far-flung outfit in the middle of ranch country somewhere, and I always felt that I couldn't get away. Well, that, and I never could muster up the chutzpah to ask for the time off. As hard as it is to spend time away from your own place, it may be even harder when you're in charge of someone else's outfit. My superficial self-pity led my thoughts down a more worthwhile path. First off, it forced me to look at my life's choices. I have to admit, in these times of self-reflection, I sometimes find myself stepping in the puddle of regret as I realize that maybe, or in this case, probably, I should have sometimes done things differently. No doubt my marriage and my family life could have benefited from some more time and effort given to just us. But I've since learned over the years that too much time spent in regret only leads to more regret. I figured out how to find the good in some of the choices, if not the mistakes. It's not always a bad thing to just duck your head and tap the pony with the spurs and charge through the tangle of oak brush, and, oak brush or mahogany on the side hill. Going around in the end may not always be the best choice, even if it isn't necessarily a wrong choice. The hard times, screw-ups, and the tears... As often as not, build fortitude if we allow it. I think, or at least I hope, my wife and my kids can look back and find gratitude in the rough trails we've traveled. It may have changed us, but then what's the point of living if we don't allow life to change us? As I step back and think at this time of year, I can appreciate the parallels in our nation's struggles. I'm grateful for the promise of, not the right to happiness itself, but the right to pursue happiness, the privilege to exhaust our potential in that pursuit. What a grand opportunity that is, but also what a grand responsibility it is. And I hope we can all think about that this Thanksgiving. This is Paul Marchant with another version of Irons in the Fire, wishing you the happiest of weeks and the happiest of Thanksgivings. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Neil Larson. I'll catch up with you next week at the same time right here on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.